Gavin, it's your old advisor, Darren. This is the only way I could find to get a hold of you through the podcast. Uh, quit bad mouthing camels. Have me on for a uh, episode about camels, or you could have me on uh, uh, as an episode on uh, advising graduate students or something like that. But anyway, but the big one, have me on for camels. Quit bad mouthing camels. Uh, enjoying the podcast. Talk to you soon. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 65 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, and that is Gavin. And Gavin, we have another guest this week. We sure do. It's weird. It seems that anytime we have guests, we they're always back to back. This uh, is true. It's, this is a thing with us, but, you know, yeah, we, so this I'm pretty week, happy with the guests that we have. Yeah, me too. This week, we are very pleased to be joined by my former uh, grad school advisor, Dr. Darren Paniak. Hello, Darren. Hello. Hello, Gavin. Hello, Mike. It's great so, to have you here. Yeah. So many listeners may be wondering, or if you're familiar with the podcast, you might already know why Darren's here. And you may notice a link down in the show notes saying to leave us a voice message. We- Darren Darren <laughs> discovered that option for us. Before we uh, did. <laughs> I'm so crafty. Mike and I... Yeah, Mike and I had no idea that that was a thing and until Mike texted me one night being like, hey, um, so we have a voicemail, I guess? <laughs> and It's from this dude named Darren says he knows you or something? like. And I was like, oh, weird. Okay, so we listened to it. And I tried to find the exact episode uh, where we, Mike and I talked about it, but I, I couldn't find it. Because uh, I traffic was really bad getting to the hotel, uh, but the gist of the message was in response to me saying how much I don't like camels, and Darren didn't seem to like that, and he told me to so in a variety of ways to stop and bad no mouthing camels, no <laughs> uncertain terms at all. So you know, Gavin, you you learned a lot from me in your time at the school of mines, you know, you, mm-hmm. I don't know, you, you, you learned, you can never take enough field notes. Yeah. You learn to never trust specimen IDs. Uh, that's true. I think you learned that your hate makes you powerful. It sure does. Um, but <laughs> the hate to camels, I, I don't understand. All right. You don't direct your hate toward camels. Gavin. We will get I into think... a little bit more about camels <laughs> after we do uh, today in history, because I'm going to break down exactly why, just a refresher for, for anybody who doesn't remember, uh, you know, it's, I'm sure there, we have so many people who have listened to every second of this podcast uh, who might not I remember uh, <laughs> uh, why I dislike camels, but we're going to start this off with a today in history. So, Mike, what have you got for us? So before I even do that, I just want to say that clearly the easiest way to get on this podcast is to tell us that you think Gavin's wrong about something. So that is absolutely there, true. Absolutely. Yep. So just yep. you want a little uh, cheat code. There you go. Um, going to be real quick today in history. Going to be a downer because, you know, why not? Oh. Um, in 2014, Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 disappeared. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Right? Remember how like CNN had just like, you know, a 24 seven, like that's all they did was cover that plane for, yeah. it felt like weeks wow. or months. Mm-hmm. So and that was... surprise, it's been uh, eight years. So yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, wow. What a trip. I, I remember like that what was a trip for them, especially. Well, 
Okay. You said it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mike. (laughs) But no, that was, but you're right. Like that was literally everywhere. Like I remember for like a solid two week, three week period where there was nothing on social media besides that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely just like a wild kind of story. Cause it was like, how do you lose a plane? And everyone, you know, the knew what they were talking about. It was like, it's a big ocean, you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's less crazy than it sounds. And I believe some wreckage of that. I actually watched a video on this just coincidentally, not too long ago. Um, some wreckage like has been found washed up at different okay. places. So yeah, it has been. Yeah. They're pretty yeah, certain oh, it is from that flight. Yeah. Gotcha. Perfect. So, you know, there is, I guess, some amount of, um, of closure for, for the families and everything. Um, but yeah, so that was eight years ago today was that flight disappeared. Um, and there is, you know, it is some great reading if you ever have a chance to, to go look into it. Interesting. Um, that's all I have for today in history. Cause I want to give us um, as much time, <laughs> as much time as possible to talk about, uh, camels. So with that, I'm mostly going to be in the background for this one. I'm going to let, uh, you know, the, the student and the master go ahead and just have at it for most of this. So take it away guys. Sure. <sighs> So, <laughs> so, um, the reason why I, and I, and I don't remember exactly how I phrased it, but it mostly came down to their taxonomy not being good, um, or their, their phylogeny. What does that, what does so that even mean? Their te- what does that even mean? Their taxonomy is not good. Much so, like camels, it's misbehave. It misbehaves. Yes. So I got really spoiled in that the main group that I worked with for my master's thesis was horses. And while there are some problems still within horses and how the different species are related to one another, that's mostly what I mean when I'm saying their taxonomy and their phylogeny, um, how the different species are related. In horses, that is really well resolved. There's still some problems, but compared to almost any other group of animals you can look at, we understand horses really well. However, in my thesis, there were some specimens from camels. And the more I read, the more I was like, do we understand anything about camels? And did you come up with an answer to that question? I mean, well, obviously, yes, we understand things about camels. But uh, the biggest thing was that uh, in mammals, you can pretty much tell if you know what you're looking for and you're familiar enough with a group, if you have even like a single tooth. Of, uh, of a mammal, you can pretty much tell what species it is, especially if it's like a molar or sometimes a premolar. Um, and especially for horses, super easy with horses. Camels, less easy, uh, so I found. Um, because from, you know, everything that I was reading was like, sometimes closely related groups will have very different teeth and, or what, what we think are closely related groups. And sometimes groups that are less closely related we have we'll, we'll have more similar teeth in in you know ways that don't make sense with how they how we think they're related and while that wasn't at all the point of my thesis it really bothered me <laughs> so um that was my biggest gripe about camels so and i i <clears throat> i understand where gavin is coming from in terms of his hatred of camels as as i said before Everything about camels is ornery. Everything about camels is cantankerous from, from their, their current attitude to their phylogeny, to their ecology. Everything about them is, is awful. And one of the things that I think Gavin ran into 
was that one of the problems that he ran into was, like he said, these horse teeth are great. You can get things down to like the species sometimes with one horse tooth. Horse taxonomy is is tight. It's very well resolved. Not only is camel taxonomy not very well resolved, but in order to really identify a camel, you pretty much need a whole skull. Yeah. And everything behind the skull is pretty much worthless. So you, you cannot really do much of it at all. You kind of need a whole skull. And if you know anything about the fossil record, you know that whole skulls aren't terribly common. Now, so why is it you that get you need, these. Why is it that you need a whole skull? Like, is this a problem with humans and our ability to classify things? Is this a problem with just like the fossil record? Or is this a problem with just like camels and the way they're designed? So it really does have to do with the fact that camel genera uh, are sort of diagnosed by the co-occurrence of a number of different characters, like uh, the number of incisors they have, the shape of their uh, canines, their premolars, and their their last incisor, um, you know, the shape of their molder. And you need all these things together in order to identify them. So you can't identify a camel from like an isolated tooth or you can't, you know, from a partial skull. Uh, you need like the whole skull because you have to have all these things occurring together in one skull in order to really get an ID. And so what happens is you get like at Gavin's thesis site, you get all these partial bits of camel skulls, but it's not enough for you to really identify them and really get an idea of the different types of camels that are at the site. So you basically had a whole bunch of material that's just identified as camel, camel, yeah. and you, you can't really do much with it. it. It's very frustrating. Yeah. And one of the things that also kind of bothered me about my thesis was how unreasonably confident people in the past had been <laughs> with, with the specimens from my site. Um, because a lot of the teeth, you know, there were, you know, a whole bunch of boxes that were just labeled you know, camel, or especially with any, you know, limb bones, you know, those were, you know, there's no chance of, you know, identifying those. But even with a couple of limb bones, uh, they were refer on the on the tag, it said, you know, this genus or this genus, just because it was really big. And there were only really two, you know, really big camels in the area at the time. So it's like, probably one of these two, but it's like, you don't know that. You know, there could be a third one that we just haven't found yet. But they part of that, that issue, Gavin, was that part of that issue was when the last time someone really took a look at your site, there weren't as many camels known. Right. There weren't as many different types of camels. So you could say, well, it's a big camel or a small camel. And that was good enough. Right. Now, when you came back, we've got, you know, 12, 16 different types of camels from your time period. So the uh the the taxonomy has gotten a lot more complicated and mm -hmm. you need a whole skull in order to identify these things and that right. change has happened over how many years 30 i think hmm. yeah i mean just based on a lot of the sources that i cited for my thesis that sounds about right yep. you know um but what was that one you know at least that there was like some kind of reasoning for you know calling that one of those two genera but a lot of teeth, just isolated teeth, were referred to a genus, um, or, or in a couple of cases, even a species. And the, the sort of methodology that I approached my thesis with was, you know, if I look at a specimen and I can tell for sure that it's not that, 
I change it. But if I'm like, if it, if I don't know for sure, I leave it as is. So a lot of those camel teeth where if I had just picked that up off the ground, I would just call that camel tooth. But because somebody had already named it that I, I left it as, as is. And uh, that was just sort of the methodology I was using, but not how I would have done it if I had found all those bones myself. But that is, in general, like I said, sort of the, the problem that I have with camels. But we're here to talk more about the actual animals themselves than we are about my personal issues. Um, this, Gavin, this I'll talk a... about your personal issues all you want. I know you would, Mike. You're a good friend. Uh, so, I mean, Darren, so... same offer goes for you. I know we don't really know each other, but if you've got something you want to bring up, like we can hash it out here. Well, no, actually, uh, we could both talk about Gavin's personal issues if yes, you really want. Yeah. So, tag team. So. <laughs> Uh, not live, not live, uh, <laughs> not on air. Um, but so, so Darren, let's, let's talk about, Folks, just so, so you know, we edited out about 30 minutes of Gavin asking us about what we should do with his fiance and what that's not and true. everything. So. <laughs> Mike, okay, Mike, you and I both know that we do not edit this podcast. <laughs> um, that, good to know. True. Good to know. So we're so live. What, uh, I guess. Since we've been talking about camels for the last, you know, almost 15 minutes, what is a camel? You know, you're you're the taking over as the content expert for this episode, Darren. So what what is a camel? Well, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go with tradition and throw it back at Mike. Oh, damn it. All right. Damn it. I thought I was getting out of this <laughs> Absolutely not. Nope. Uh, so this is how we know that Darren is one of the six listeners, uh, six regular <laughs> listeners to this podcast. Hey, no, our so, analytics show we have more than that. Don't discredit us, Mike. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. So for those of you that don't know, whenever we're talking about a new whatever, in general, Gavin, or in this case, Darren, will ask me to describe it as best I can. And it, uh, it sounds like a lot of fun and really easy until you're the one that has to do it. So camels. Um, they are, I'm going to say they're mammals, uh, cause they're hairy everywhere. I'm assuming they are indeed lie, mammals. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Um, they do, um, they either don't need a whole lot of water or they're really efficient with the amount of water they use, um, because they tend to be used in desert environments, um, like Egypt or for a brief period of time, the Southwestern United States. Um, Absolutely. Which we'll hear more about later, I, which that'll be my small contribution to this podcast. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of what else is uniquely um, to camels. Obviously you've got the humps. I'm not really mm -hmm. sure how to categorize that or classify that. Um, so would, yeah. would it help you if I threw you a couple more animals that are closely related that you, that I'm sure you're not thinking of? Sure. I mean like the, the one animal I'm thinking of Gavin, like you mentioned already is a horse just cause you know, four legs reasonably tall, you know, can be ridden. That's the one animal that I'm thinking of. What what else am I not thinking of? So the family of camels, Camelidae, which is broadly probably the what we end up talking about today, uh, yep. also today includes llamas and alpacas, as well as what most people think of as camels. So, Okay. Llamas, alpacas, and camels. I'm not going to lie. It doesn't really help me at all. Um, okay. Trying to figure out what on earth a camel is. You know, I, I feel like a camel is... Um, Again, this is as frequently we'll go here. I'll get the broad idea right, but not the scientific basis. 
it is a um, a reasonably large mammal that can be ridden um, for long periods of time um, without the need for um, a consistent water break um, or needing to consume water a whole lot. That's when I think of camel and you know they're hairy, they have the humps. Um, when I hear a camel, that's generally what's in my head. And so I, I will end that diatribe there. And Darren, uh, how, how do they <laughs> In terms of describing modern camels, you did very well. So, yeah. Yep. The, the, the one humpers and two humpers, the Bactrian and dromedaries. Yes, you did. You did quite well. So, um, so that is one half of like the modern camel lineage is the Bactrian camel that is native to uh, Northern China, Mongolia, that sort of thing. And then the dromedary, which is native to the uh, sort of the Middle East. Uh, they had a wider range in the past mm-hmm. through much more of Africa and that sort of thing. But, um, but uh, um, that's, you're pretty accurate for, uh, for that side of the lineage. So camels are artiodactyls, meaning they have an even number of toes. They have a cloven foot. Mm, okay. which means they're related to distant related to cattle, antelope, uh, uh, deer, uh, goats, that sort of thing. But that group is divided into basically primitive versus kind of derived things. And so the derived things in that group are like the deer, the cattle. You guys had a great episode on cattle. Um, you know, uh, um, those are uh, pronghorn antelope that are very prevalent here in North America. And then the primitive group contains a lot of extinct organisms, um, but also things like peccaries, which are North America's answer to, uh, to pigs, uh, giraffes, hippos. So these are like really primitive artiodactyls. And camels fall into that group. So they fall into this sort of primitive, uh, primitive artiodactyl group. And of course, as, uh, as we alluded to, modern camels have there are basically two different types there's the camels from the mid-east from asia that you're familiar with and then there's llamas and we find llamas alpacas guanacos and vicuñas down in south america and so they are camelids as well they are sort of a different subset of camels that we know in terms of the stuff that we'd see out in the desert in the middle east and that sort of thing and these two lineages are the end of probably a 50 million year history, 45 to 50 million year history, the vast majority of which was only in North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're we, very much like horses in that way. Yep. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite sort of fun facts is that a lot of the groups that like you think of as being very characteristic to other parts of the world today were much more common and did a lot of their evolutionary history here in North America. You know, like horses, camels, uh, tapers, rhinos. Mm -hmm. uh, And, you know, but they're all locally extinct, you know, with the exception of some released horses and for a short period of time, some released camels. Uh, Yep. So that was a question I was going to ask just to clarify. So most of that evolution um, over the last 50 million years took place in North America, but the by and large, we are not talking about any of that family still existing on this continent. Am I right? Yeah. Up until, up until the end of the last ice age, camels were uh, absolutely ubiquitous parts of North American faunas. Yep. They, they, you, you did not go that entire time without there being at least one camel and at the end of the last ice age, we lost our last camels. Okay. 
But by that time, uh, descendants had one group of descendants had migrated over to uh, Asia to become the camels we have today. And another group had migrated down to uh, South America during that great American biotic interchange mm-hmm. that uh, that uh, we talked about uh, uh, a little later or a little uh, a few episodes ago. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess let's uh, let's take us back to sort of the start of that 50 million year history. Mm-hmm. So I guess what were some of the first camels like? What were they doing and, and sort of when did they show up? So in North America, the first camel that shows up is this thing called Poebrotherium. And it was not very big. It was, you know, the size of a large cat, small dog. And they're very common in the uh, the Badlands, in the White River group of South Mm -hmm. Dakota. And we get hints of them as far back as maybe 45 million years, but really they don't become uh, come common until the Oligocene at about 35 million years ago. But one of the cool things is that we know they're camels, right? We know yeah. they're camels because of a very unique feature. Um, we know that the cloven hoofed animals lose sort of their, their lateral digits and they're basically walking on our middle finger and our ring finger. Well, any animal that has a cloven hoof like that, those distal toes split, but the bones in their hand and feet fuse up into one single bone. We call it a cannon bone. And so it's fused into one bone from the wrist all the way out to the knuckles. Camels have a very, very unique uh, uh, cannon bone. We call it a slingshot cannon bone in that it, uh, um, it starts as a fused unit, and then about two-thirds of the way down, it actually splits. So those toes on a camel actually start to split above the knuckle. And this is one of the reasons why when you look at a camel, uh, you look at its foot, it has these really big pads. Mm-hmm. It has the space for those pads because those digits actually split above the knuckle. Yep. Right, and that's that's something that I think a lot of people don't like look, you look at a camel and you don't think that that has like hooves in the same sense that like a cow does uh, mm-hmm. just because their feet look structurally really differently. And like, I, I really remember uh, in our paleobiology class, the class uh, that we had that, you know, you taught uh, where we sort of learn all the different pieces of anatomy, particularly of, of mammals, because that's what we have a lot of on hand. But during the part, uh, the, the you know lab where we were looking at camels, he, you, you ran down to the lab or to our uh, collection space and grabbed one of these cannon bones of, I don't was it AP Camelus? No, really it was probably one? like Megatylopus or something. It was something okay. huge. Yeah. But one of the really, really big ones. And yeah, you could use that as a slingshot pretty well. <laughs> yep. So that that slingshot metapodial then splits their hooves above the knuckle and they develop these pads. And it seems as if they develop these pads pretty early on. This is something that that uh, is is sort of key to their adaptation. And so because of those, they are uh, uh, very good at adapting to or at moving around in in uh, in a number of different environments, a number of different substrates and that sort of thing. Uh, Camels never get fast. 
camels are never going to set any land speed records. But what camels do seem to do well very early on in their evolution is be able to walk at a pretty good pace for long, 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 long distances. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I never really thought about it because pretty much every larger group that I can think of has had some member that like adapted more toward faster running. Like even rhinos had some pretty quick members. Yep. And you definitely don't think of rhinos as being particularly speedy animals today, at least, you know, as we know them today. But yeah, I guess that's, I never really thought about that with camels that they just, that's just not something they ever did. They just tend to be pretty mellow except when they're angry and, and spitting at you. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Now there's, there's a few exceptions that we'll maybe talk about in a bit. Uh, in the early Miocene, there were these gazelle camels, uh, that, oh. that, uh, um, that got, you know, a little fast, a little kind of jumpy. They were kind of like a little Thompson's gazelle, but for the most part, camels evolved to be able to walk good long distances. And one of the things that they also develop is, uh, a, a pacing gait. So they move the legs on the left side, you know, they move those all at once, and then they move the right ones all at once. They move the left ones all at once. They move the right ones all at once. This is a unique gait that you don't see in a lot of other yeah. ungulates, these hoofed animals. And this evolves pretty quickly. And it's one of the reasons for their long-term success. And if that you look back, if you look strange. back in history, one of the things that camels were always called the ships of the desert mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. But one of the supposed reasons was that when Europeans started riding these camels, because they walk on the, with this pacing gait, they kind of sway back and forth. Mm-hmm. And Europeans got motion sick. Interesting. When they rode these camels. And up until that point, the only place you got motion sick was on a ship. So. Hmm. Yeah. Is yeah. It, no, yeah. Like, I guess. I'll oh, go ahead, Mike. Is there a particular advantage that having that gait where you move everything on the left side, then everything on the right side all at once? Like, does that. Is, does that. Is there any particular reason why that might be advantageous for camels instead of, you know, moving kind of one foot at a time or alternating? I'm not entirely certain. Now, I know you can train horses to run like that. They're called pacing horses. And I think it ends up being a bit more of an efficient gait in terms of you're able to maintain that gait for for a lot longer. Also, I know that at least in horses, pacing horses kind of have a smoother ride in terms of kind of at like, like a trot, that sort of thing. Um, but mm-hmm. I think it's just kind of more of an, a more efficient gate for just traveling long distances. Which is exactly what camels have been doing for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years, I guess, at this point. Millions, millions, millions. at this point. Yep. Understood. Yep. All right. So after we get some of these uh, earliest ones and we start to see them sort of balloon a bit in their diversity in the Oligocene, what, uh, what happens around then? So camels experience a number about after the Oligocene, they experience three major diversification events. And one of the neat things about camels, one of the things that I like most about camels is that, have you talked about, uh, disparity on the, on the podcast? I don't think you have. You've talked about diversity. Yeah. Yep. So I don't have a clue what that means. So if that helps. All right, cool. We'll, we'll go over it then. All right. So, so, so there's a couple of different ways in which we measure kind of the variation in fossil organisms. The first that you guys have talked about quite a bit is 
diversity. And diversity is the number of different types, you know, number of genera, number of species, that sort of thing. The other way that we can sort of measure how many different kinds of animals there are is something called disparity. And disparity is, is basically different types of body plans, different types of morphologies. Do these organisms do a lot of different things in their body plans? And so Gavin's horses that he talked about in the middle Miocene, horses are really, really, really diverse. There's mm -hmm. a lot of different kinds of them but they do not show a high level of disparity other than maybe in their teeth. But overall, a horse in the Miocene is a horse. They're, they're all going to look pretty much pretty similar. Camels are really cool because not only do they show a high level of diversity, that there are a lot of kinds, but they show a high level of disparity too, meaning they assume all kinds of crazy different uh, body shapes and sizes and that sort of thing to maximize sort of resource usage during their time period. Is that part it, of why it's difficult to um, identify camels based on just like one tooth or with, you know, a leg bone or something because they're so um, disparate? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. That, that is part of the problem. Yep. They're doing a lot of different things. Yep. And another big problem with camels is that, for example, camels in the early Miocene start to do one thing and then camels in the late Miocene that are kind of completely unrelated to the early Miocene camels start to do the same thing. And so mm -hmm. if you try and do like a phylogenetic analysis of these things, unrelated groups become fallout as related. So I love to tell my students that camels are so ornery, they break cladistics. So cladistics doesn't work on them, that you can't even do phylogenetic trees on them. They're so ornery. Yeah. And the few that I tried to look at just never came out pretty mm -hmm. because you know, most of, well, all of the time, by definition, all species within a genus must be more closely related to each other than they are to a species that is not in the genus. That's how cladistics works. But man, every cladistic tree that I saw for camels broke up like every genus that they tried to put in the tree. Yep. So, and it's, it's one of those things where it's like, everybody kind of agrees, man, somebody should really figure out these camels but then there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, somebody else will do it. <laughs> or some idiot like me tries and throws and then, their yeah. hand up. <laughs> and when I was first proposing to try this, uh, mm. um, I would go to previous researchers who would try, who tried. I went to like basically two prior generations of paleontologists to say, well, do you think we could do a cladistic analysis on these things? And everyone was just like, good luck. Let me know how that works out for you. So, and now I tell subsequent generations the same thing. Good luck. Let me know how that works out for you. So, yeah. yeah. So I guess, so what are some of these trends, I guess, since you mentioned them that one group of camels starts doing, and then later another group completely unrelated starts doing the same thing. So what are some of these trends that camels do over and over? So when we, when we hit the Miocene about 20 million years ago, give or take, Camels explode in North America. They go nuts, both in diversity and disparity. <clears throat> and one of the first groups of camels we get are these things I, I alluded to before called stenomylenes, which are these gazelle camels. And we get these preserved very commonly right in my neck of the woods here, just south of us in western South Dakota, or western Nebraska, excuse me, at a great site called Agate Fossil Beds. Yeah. And these camels were literally like little antelope. They were like little Thompson's gazelles or, or something 
minus the horns, minus the yeah, minus the horns. They were the spitting image of these little little uh, um, little antelope from Africa, and we know they occurred in herds because we find their skeletons in these huge assemblages, uh, and we think that they were also going about in like a, a, a kind of a semi-arid environment, but we don't think they had humps. Um, the hump is probably a relatively new, uh, feature within camels. Um, but there were these little kind of, you know, you look at a Thompson's gazelle, a herd of Thompson's gazelle on a national geographic special. That's basically what these little antelope camel or these gazelle camels were doing. The spitting image of these little gazelles. And then from there, camels just go nuts, all right? They do all kinds of stuff. So we get your run-of-the-mill camel from the Miocene then is going to kind of be like a llama, is going to be relatively similar similar in physical proportions to a llama. Um, maybe a little uh, uh, thinner and maybe able to move at a little faster pace, but they're going to be very similar in proportions to, to a llama. But from there, we do all kinds of different things. So we get these little camels like this thing called paramyolabus. And I actually named a new species of paramyolabus, paramyolabus minutus, in my dissertation. And these were like tiny, tiny, tiny little deer. They were like itty-bitty little deer. Okay. Um, tiny, okay, tiny little the size things. of a dog? Like the size of a hamster? The size of a cat. Like the size okay. of a cat, little little tiny cat like uh, uh, cat like deer, yep. which which sounds really strange to us here in North America, but in basically every other continent, those are fairly common. You know, there's lots yes. of species of deer that are very yeah. small like that in Asia, South America, uh, Africa. Yeah, so there's those. Eh, I actually can't think of any off the top of my head in Africa, but definitely uh, for sure uh, Asia. Yeah, and South there's America. a few little ones in Africa, but yeah. but in Asia, yeah, so, like so, the Mont Jack or oh yeah, yeah, yep. But yeah, so that might sound strange to our North American listeners, but that is not an unusual thing to have in an environment. Yep. And so then you get some forms, things like myolabus and protolabus that are kind of a little more like regular sized deer, you know, bearing in mind, none of these things had, had antlers or horns or any of those things, you know, but in terms of proportions, they, they come out fairly similar to maybe even a whitetail or a mule deer. Uh, probably doing somewhat similar things that just not moving as fast. But then the, the, the big crazy ones that we develop in the middle Miocene are what we call giraffe camels. And these are things primarily like Epicamelus and Hesperocamelus. And these things basically became giraffes. So there was a, there were trees that uh, were high. And so they developed long legs and long necks to reach the, uh, reach the forage in the trees that was sort of up at height, just like mo modern giraffes do today. Mm -hmm. So total convergent evolutions, ev evolution. Camels basically became giraffes for a brief period in the Miocene. Right. And it's, it's funny because I, I, I'm fairly sure, you know, these days with camels, who knows, but I'm fairly sure this is no longer the case. Uh, but at least growing up, I had always sort of heard that camels closest relatives are giraffes and i don't believe that that's where we put camels these days uh but yeah um you could probably say that a camel's closest living relative is a giraffe right. 
That's that's probably fair to say. But the issue is that between camels and giraffes, there's a lot of extinct groups. Yeah, that, sure. that kind of connect them up that that are no longer with us. But so in yeah, terms of closest. living, in terms of living species, it sounds like camels are kind of on their own for the most part. Yes, they are. They're they're kind of their own unique, irascible entity. Yeah, because I think you know, other than the the hippo whale lineage, they probably they split from the other artiodactyls the the earliest. So that, yes. that's why they're so weird compared yep. to the rest of the artiodactyls. Yep. Um, yeah. So Doing I guess their own how, thing from day one. Yeah. Uh, so how big were were some of these? giraffe camels is it sort of just one for one with a giraffe or and proportions yeah and basically the, the same yeah some of the bigger ones you would get like 12 15 feet so comparable to a modern giraffe okay yep yep and again just like a giraffe these long lanky legs this big old long neck the the main difference was that giraffes have this neck that kind of slopes down into their back you know mm -hmm. there's kind of a slope from the neck down to their their tail um these these camels would have had more of like a, a horizontal back and then there may have been a bit more of like kind of a sinusoidal s curve to their to their uh, uh to their neck um but still okay. pretty much doing what giraffes do eating eating off the treetops neat so yep. that is around like you said the middle to later miocene so that's just for reference for our listeners that's Roughly, you know, 10-ish to the late latest Miocene was around 5-ish million years ago. And yep. so after camels explode, take over North America, um, I guess sort of for, for our listeners, why around those times? Why during the Miocene, the later Oligocene, why did camels sort of explode when they did? Because, you know, very few things in evolution just sort of happen, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So... Uh, just like we've talked about with horses and, and, you know, cattle, they, 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 they diversify at certain times for certain reasons. So why, why camels and, and why then? So one of the parallels we draw with camels today is if we take a look at modern, uh, East Africa, what are some of the most diverse animals that we see diverse mammals we see in modern East Africa today? That would probably be bovids right yes all those antelope all those animal antelope that we've already talked about thompson's gazelle springbuck mm -hmm. you know wildebeest all these things yep and so what's happening in modern east africa is it's sort of a kind of an open savanna type environment where you've got uh, um you know small copses of trees with more open scrubland in between it this is an environment that supports very high diversity but it's also an environment that supports a lot of different niches and a niche is basically kind of you can think of it as like an animal's job this is what it does in the ecosystem some graze some browse some eat eat shrubs that sort of thing and the reason we have so many different kinds of antelope in east africa today is because there's a lot of ecological opportunity for them to do a lot of things and assume a lot of different body types translate this back to north america and the miocene North America in the Miocene was basically East Africa. Very, very similar subtropical scrubland, savanna sort of environment. And bovids weren't around yet. So these animals as a group weren't really around yet. They may have been just appearing in Asia, but they weren't around. And so the group that stepped up to do the bovid thing in North America were the camelids, were the camels. 
And so they assumed all these different roles because they were, they were kind of the, you can kind of think of them as like the jack of all trades in the sense that they assumed a lot of different ecological roles. Uh, and so that's, that's sort of the secret to their diversity and their disparity. And that goes on throughout the Miocene until things begin to change. Cool. And so I guess moving toward the modern times, what, what changed to make camels uh, no longer suitable to be North America's, you know, gazelles and, and wildebeest and stuff? So what happened at the end of the Miocene was we moved out of this tropical sort of environment and major changes in ocean circulation and atmospheric circulation basically transformed North America from a very tropical climate toward something that is more temperate to something that is seasonal with like a a warm summer and a, a, a cool snowy winter perhaps. And this really causes a drop in the variability of niches or the, the variability of ecological roles that organisms play. And this took place over the course of, you know, four or five million years, this trans transition. But as this transition goes from this tropical savanna, really up until the ice ages, we see camel diversity drop and drop and drop and drop and drop. And during that time period, we basically also see our two modern groups of camels pop up. So our modern camels become pretty prevalent and we basically get giant versions of modern camels in North mm -hmm. America today. So we get things like Megatylopus, Titanotylopus, Gigantocamelus, which were basically a, back, uh, a dromedary camel only 50% bigger. They were huge. Yep. And then long about 2 million years, they migrate across Alaska over the Bering Land Strait over to Europe, over to Asia and become the, uh, the Bactrian Andromedaires that we know and love today. And then that other group, the llamas, they sort of develop and diversify. And then they head south during the Great American Biotic Interchange when South America connects with North America. And then they go south and do their llama, vicuña, alpaca thing down there. And these then populations that emigrated from North America, they sort of stuck around and the last remaining camels by the end of the ice age died out, uh, um, by 10, 9,000 years ago. And, and what a shame that was. It's true. <laughs> yeah. What a shame for everyone except Gavin. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I just think seeing all these different, you know, animals out native to North, well, when they were native to North America would, would have just been really cool. Uh, I think, you know, I don't know how long they would have lasted after, uh, after... You like the better alive than dead is what you're trying to say. Yeah, which is kind of goes against the, uh, the theme of the podcast, I guess. <laughs> the premise of the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but I mean, who knows how long they would have lasted once, uh, you know, European folks got here. Uh, True, but, yep. Well, and, and another thing is like, like, you know, camels actually did okay during the ice age. Um, you know, modern Bactrian camels live in mm -hmm. very seasonal conditions and they do very well. You know, Mongolia gets pretty cold yeah. in the winter. Yeah. Center of the vast Asian continent. And so temperatures get very, very cold. Bactrian camels do fine. 
And back in the back in the Pleistocene, we had you know uh, uh, these large camels, uh, you know, up by the Arctic Circle. So mm-hmm. there were camels that at one point were adapted to cold, and the Bactrian camels are are basically their their descendants. You know, they're the ones that are still pretty well adapted to cold. So camels did well. They right up until the end, they were you know adapting to a wide array of different environments. Yeah, and they they got caught up in. You know, the same thing that, you know, likely took out things like the, the mammoths and, you know, other large mammalian megafauna that were still trying to exactly parse out how all of they, you know, all of the large mammalian things went extinct toward the end of the Ice Age, whether it was climate stuff or humans or probably both. Uh, so that's, at least as I understand it, I don't know, there might be some timeline issues with camels that they might have gone extinct before humans got to North America here. Yeah, they, they it does kind of coincide. It does okay. kind of coincide, although I don't know of any real evidence of humans hunting camels. You know, okay. I don't know of any evidence. Um, you know, we have evidence of humans hunting mammoths, you know, here in right. mammoths and bison mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. If you go to the old world, particularly in Russia, we have evidence of humans hunting horses, not so much in right. North America, but we do have evidence of humans hunting horses, but there's no real correlation between, between human hunting and camels. So something else was going on, you know, something else other than just human hunters hit these, this megafauna hard and camels were one of the ones that, you know, that went along with everything else. And that pretty much brings us to the, the modern day. And, exactly, uh, and I think Mike at this point might have uh, a little a little story to tell us. I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure it would be fair to say that I have a story to tell because <laughs> I only became aware of this. I only became aware of this on the podcast. I have no idea what episode it was, but Gavin, you were the one that first introduced this to me. I sure did, wow. and I wish that I could remember. It was super early in in the podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't remember at all what episode it was, but it was it was fairly early. Um, but I guess take it away, Mike. Tell and enrich <laughs> us, enrich us with this story. So basically, here, um, and I am not going to pretend as though I am some sort of expert on the subject. However, um, in the United States, in kind of the mid eighteen fifties, there were a few people that uh, were trying to figure out better ways to get around in the western particularly the southwestern united states and you can imagine this being a problem you have a whole bunch of people from uh from the east coast uh james k polk shows up he you know he expands the country by a whole bunch and now you got all these like you know big city east coast guys that have no idea how to get around in the west and, <laughs> which is know. which is still true today i it's as, true uh, yep as an east well, coast person who currently lives on the west coast <laughs> yeah I, I can confirm Right. And, uh, you know, to, to uh, paraphrase one of my favorite comedians, they could have used the Native Americans to help, but, you know, they killed them instead of asking them for help to get around. So it's true. Yep. Yeah. They need, right. They needed to have some way to try and get around um, in the, the southwestern United States. And um, when you look at this, the one name that comes up over and over again, which to me is just hilarious in a terrible kind of way is a guy named Jefferson Davis. Uh, oh, no. Does that name mean anything to either of you guys? <laughs> it sure does. It sure does. Jefferson yep. Davis. What is, what is he most yep. famous for? 
a little flag was... <laughs> that, that we we see a lot these days in, in modern society. Although although to, I haven't seen one since I've moved out to California, which is oh you, you haven't know, I'm, oh I'm sure okay. they're here. All right, uh, but anyway, we're alluding to I believe Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy. He was that is yep. correct. Okay, Jefferson I couldn't remember Davis if he was, was president or vice president. No, a different guy. Um, I believe the vice president was Alexander Stevens, I want to say. That sounds right. Um, yeah. Yeah, who was, right. you know, another flaming racist. Um, but before <laughs> before Jefferson Davis went on to, uh, you know, you know, great infamy as president of the Confederacy, he was a senator, and then he was secretary of war, today uh, secretary of defense. He was in charge of the United States military, um, which is just wild for a guy that would go on to be the president of the Confederacy. And he got obsessed with this idea. In the 1850s, he becomes Secretary of War in, oh goodness, I believe it is um, like 1854, I want to say. Um, 1853, he becomes Secretary of War. He is able to get the funding from camels. There are a couple of ships that are sent across um, the Atlantic Ocean to pick up camels, I believe, from Egypt. Um, they are brought over and they are used in the southwestern United States to go around to... Uh, for different kinds of missions to basically help people in the Southwest, um, you know, navigate and learn that terrain a lot better. And it seems like a program that actually would have, um, I don't want to say would have, could have gone on very well, except for the fact that uh, the Civil War broke out shortly thereafter. Yep. And once the Civil War breaks out, the program was partially abandoned, um, in part because, you know, some of the generals that were, in charge of these camels were Confederates. Um, and so the program sort of fell into disrepair. And by, I believe it was 18, uh, 1866. So just a year after the civil war officially ends, the camel corps was disbanded and those camels were um, often sold off. And so uh, the, the way this was phrased to me by Gavin, however many episodes ago was the United States employed war camels for a <laughs> short period of time in the military uh, until, uh, until they became, not so helpful in trying to defeat the Confederacy. Yeah, I mean, that's, to be fair, I, I, yeah, go ahead, uh, Gavin. Yep. I was just to say, I mean, that's as far as I knew, there were, you know, Union soldiers who rode camels into battle, uh, which I don't think actually happened. But man, what a sight. Absolutely. I don't want, again, I don't want to pretend like it, it didn't happen. I don't, I'm not an expert, but it, it, the program itself, you know, during the Civil War, people had like bigger things going on. Oh, yeah. Also, yeah, the Southwest was its whole different thing uh, during the Civil War. People were more focused on, again, you know, a little East Coast bias there. Yeah, for the most part, they were used as pack animals, I think. I don't think yeah. there was a lot of actual riding of these camels. I think they were they were used as, as pack animals. And I think and, another reason why the uh, uh, program didn't take off was because the cavalry just couldn't handle the camel's attitude. They were just, compared to horses, <laughs> they were just awful to deal with. <laughs> so yes the running theme is camels are jerks and so i mean is that part of the reason why you know like horses became so dominant um as the animal to ride and everything um just because they were an easier animal to deal with um is you know or is it have more to do with the fact that horses can run faster or like what is there a particular reason why humans at least in north america have selected for horses over camels it probably has to do with the fact that one, yes, horses probably do have a better temperament. Two, horses can survive in a wider range of environments than other than other critters, and they are probably the most efficient 
running, running, uh, running mammals, and also the ones that are the best capable of, of carrying loads. Now, camels are great in arid conditions, but they're not terribly fast. And again, they're a pain in the butt to deal with. Got yeah, I, w- I would also argue <clears throat> probably where they were originally domesticated also has a big thing to do with it. Yes. Because, yep. you know, horses were domesticated depending on, you know, where the research is currently at. Somewhere in like Eastern Europe, Western Asia. Uh, and camels, I don't even, I honestly, if you would tell me that like, hey, they're just tamed camels, not like truly domesticated camels. I believe it, given how mean they are. Uh, so I don't, I don't even know if there are technically domesticated camels. Actually, in terms of the, the dromedaries, I don't think there are any wild populations left anymore. Oh, interesting. I think dromedaries are, are pretty much all domesticated now, but with camels, there were two centers of, of, uh, of domestication independent. There was the Middle East. And then of course there was the, the Bactrians in Northern China, Mongolia. Right. So what is and, the state of camels today? So the U.S. Camel Corps, that is, you know, going on 150 years ago now. Um, what, you know, where are camels typically seen today? What are they used for? I know they're sort of these stereotypical, you know, camels are in, you know, the like the Sahara Desert um, that we get from, you know, probably at least semi-racist cartoons. Um, at least that's in my head. Uh, you know, where do we see camels today? That's pretty much going to be the thing, you know, the, your dromedary camels are going to be a source of, of, uh, of, of transportation, uh, pack animals in the North African, Middle Eastern desert. Uh, you know, I, I, I think there is some use of camel furs and hide. Uh, and I even think, uh, sometimes the milk is, is drunk from camels. Uh, I believe there are also camel pageants that I've heard about in various countries in the Middle East. There, you're right. Yep, there is. Yep, camel pageants like Camel yeah. 4-H. Yeah, or effectively like you know horse shows, cow shows, yep. but for camels. Yep. <laughs> and then of course, uh, you know, llamas down in South America are doing their own thing, but we have uh, we have domesticated one form of llama, the alpaca. And primarily, we're using it. It's 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 wool. Essentially, it's wool. Uh, and alpaca wool is gorgeous. I mean, it is soft. It is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fantastic. And great sort of little bit of party trivia. Out here in uh, uh, in Wyoming, a lot of uh, sheep herders. Uh, you would think that they might put a big dog. Out in their uh, <laughs> out in their uh, sheep herds to keep away the coyotes. No, they throw a llama into their sheep herds because really? yes, because mm-hmm. again, ornery sobs they will not take anything off a coyote, and a llama is much much more uh, um, more effective at chasing off a uh, a coyote than than a dog is. That, so out here, it's a pretty common sight to see a, a herd of sheep with a llama in the middle of it. Wow. I just imagine that, like the, a big worth to see. white like cloud of like fluffy sheep with like one just big long neck sticking out of the middle of it, yep. swiveling around <laughs> looking at stuff. Yep. <laughs> and they all do spit. Mm-hmm. They all said, spit. 
Yeah, how is so is, we said we've domesticated this one uh these alpacas are they are their temperaments better than camels um or what what is the deal with that yeah so alpacas are kind of cool actually they actually make reasonably good pets uh i know a lot of a couple people here in the hills who have alpacas and they use them as pack animals when they go when they go uh, um hiking you know they'll have them carry the the gear and the water and that sort of stuff oh, cool. and so they're, they're pretty decent they're, they're pretty chill um, they're not like dogs in the sense that they'll cuddle up and 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 uh, like to be petted and that sort of thing. But but they they get along with humans and they're 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 a little better. Um, you know they'll still get a little ornery and spit at you every now and then. But but the alpacas I think are a lot better than than uh, than your sort of wild camels. <laughs> oh, that is that is awesome to think about and just awesome to uh, uh, just awesome to picture. Just like going up on a hike just a nice nice you know couple day hike with with some alpacas yep they get they put saddlebags on them and yeah yep and they're really chill they're just like yeah okay we'll hang out it's funny so you know uh, i've been on you know a decent number of hikes or different at least like trails and things uh out here in california and like everybody and their brother brings their dog (laughs) yeah and i can only imagine the looks i would get from like la people who have like their little dog with them on the hike. I'm like me just being dragged along by my pack alpaca up the trail to the top of the mountain. That would be fantastic. It would be wonderful. <laughs> um, that'd be wonderful. And uh, this episode has been wonderful. Is there anything left to be said um, about camels? Anything, you know, Gavin, do you have any defenses for your position? Have you been persuaded that camels are actually cool? What, what is there left to be said about camels here um, at the tail end of this episode? I mean, I've always thought camels were interesting. Um, I still don't particularly like them. But that kind of goes with everything with bad taxonomy, which is, frankly, a lot of groups. Uh, (laughs) um, But I do appreciate them ever so slightly more. So I guess you kind of did your job today, Darren. (laughs) Excellent. Well, and one of the things we can leave you with is that, yeah, while... Camel taxonomy is an absolute mess. One of the things that we're finding camels very useful for is interpreting paleoecology because they're yeah. doing all these different things and 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 assuming all these different body plans and stuff. Um, we can actually interpret a lot about the environment based on the camels. So yeah, they're they're telling them apart is a mess. But if we interpret what they were doing, that can tell us a lot about the environment. That's the that's the real beauty of camels. The, the real beauty of camels. That might have to be the episode title. I was you uh, took words out of my mouth. That was the the real beauty of camels featuring Darren. Um, I am a thank you very much, Darren, for uh, for joining on this episode. This was a ton of fun, and uh, if hopefully you get pissed off at Gavin at some point again, and we can have you back on the podcast to uh, oh, absolutely. To set him Yep, there's plenty that I could get pissed off at Gavin about. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. This has been episode sixty five. Of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That is Gavin. And Darren, thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you guys next week with episode 66. Take care, everybody. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you. 